0: all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim and welcome one and all to episode 197 of the SLS cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would have to be after our special Pairing numbers episodes of the SLS cast. This would have to be the temporary element name of the SLS cast because it turns out that there is an atomic element out there and it is temporarily called unenseptium. Yes, unenseptium and its atomic number is one. Ninety-seven. I have no idea why it's only temporary. temporarily called that. Maybe it's not going to be an element for very long. Uh, maybe they just have placeholder cards or something. Maybe they got to vote. I'm not sure. But <laughs> that's what's up. It does it not sound like technical a enough? A bit of temporary knowledge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> maybe it's too close to unobtainium, and they're worried that... Uh, for copyright you know, laws? James they're Cameron's going to sue them. Yes. <laughs> yes. So... At any rate, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee. Tim, I wonder, like, you would think by
1: now that James Cameron, with all of his, with his science background and money, he would own the periodic table by now, since he is indeed a scientist, (laughs) a very rich scientist.
0: I think that if uh, he truly owned the periodic table, he would not have used unobtainium in avatar and instead would have just gotten one of the most rarest purest atomic elements that could be used and harnessed for technological advance in space and stuff like that and just made the planet have that instead. Like what? Because there are Oh man, where's my buddy Rob when you need him? Is he oh, is he like a periodic elements, table right whiz? Now.
1: Does he know he, all the elements? yes,
0: he actually is. He knows he knows quite a few of the elements and um And and because of his uh, degree in geology and stuff like that, uh, he also knows which elements are um, from space. And I think that that would be really cool to find that kind of stuff out. Because I mean, we already have them. there's stuff out there that there's just tiny, tiny tiny amounts of, um, and yet we already know that there's so much potential to be harnessed from these things. So why do you have to make up unobtainium? I mean, I'd rather I'd rather have un inseptium. I don't even know what the fuck that is. It sounds like a spell in Harry Potter, but you know um, <laughs> if that was a spell, what would it do? I, I don't know. It clear your sinuses, right Because you have a septum. Right, devi- you know, so uninceptium, I guess. Yeah. Where it Un- gives in-septium. your enemies a deviated septum. There you go. Yes, it deviates <laughs> another Wizard of Witches. So, so yeah, but um, anyway. How, how, was your, how was your week? How, do you en- how are you enjoying our new recording time? Our On recording Tuesdays. Day? Which is now Tuesdays now, yeah. Tuesdays, it's, Tuesdays it's better than Wednesdays at
1: least. We used to record on Wednesdays. We used to record on Sundays back in back in the day, back six years hey, ago, five years ago.
0: And then Mondays worked for a while, and then this semester has just been completely kicking my ass. And so Tim graciously shifted a day. So that graciously,
1: I had to move. I had to clear so much off my calendar. I had so much going on on Tuesdays, <laughs> <laughs> Tuesday I <don't> know. evenings. <laughs>
0: When you you have to, you know, completely make sure your schedule is always open on Monday nights, I assume you can bump things to another day of the week. And now maybe that day was Tuesday. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can still do the same things that I would do on Tuesdays on Mondays now. In fact, I could probably do more things on Mondays than on Tuesdays. Like catch the closing of a play that they normally close on Mondays. Hey, see, there you go. So this week I went to go see are you
0: familiar with Jeff Lynne and ELO the band? I am. Uh I am not a super huge fan. Um but not because not because they're uh they're bad or it's not my taste. I am It's because you love Xanadu. With them. Go ahead and admit it. You you <laughs> love them because of
1: Xanadu and they only made one.
0: <laughs> That's right. That's right. Xanadu. Uh no, but um it, it's it's it, it's simply uh a matter of just passing familiarity with them yeah so so you know, the, know the medieval woman but...
1: and the mr blue sky
0: don't even know that just know of them because of you know passing familiarities with people like you who are fans and talk about their stuff or with you know oh gotcha gotcha references to xanadu that kind of thing
1: so i i went to go see the concert he did three shows three nights in a row at the hollywood bowl and um a great light show i mean i i I saw him a year or so ago he did a small a warm-up club show
0: elo electric light orchestra
1: yeah yeah and so it's not the the whole band it's just him it's his elo but uh i saw him once before at the fonda theater super small venue But this time he was performing at the Hollywood Bowl and with the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. And as all of you ELO fans or casual ELO fans know, it's a very symphonic orchestration-heavy band. It's a lot of strings, and the and and it's it's a big production value. You know the uh, uh, all the songs pretty much. So there's a great wall of beautiful orchestrational sound so they had the hollywood bowl orchestra uh, which is a beautiful orchestra uh, playing behind them a wonderful concert i went with the significant other we had a ball probably one of the best concerts i've seen at the hollywood bowl now with saying that and, again, I mean, it was it was like you were watching a stage show. You had light, you had fireworks, you know, at the end. It was a fireworks finale. You know, you had the cool light show, and the entire bowl was lit up. I've yet to see a show there where they utilized all the blank wall space, and they projected lights onto it, and it was just so cool. So it was fun to watch. Well, I had this... Um, do you know, Matt, how ba- a stereotype for... I don't want to sound mean here, but Asian folk, well, like whenever they go to the big city, like it was, it was like a a popular thing to make fun of back in the, you know, 80s and 90s. You know, they go to the big city and they would just kind of like walk super slow and take pictures of everything. And every time they saw something that piques their fancy just a smidge, they had to capture it on film.
0: So the stereotypical thing is uh, Asian people generally regarded as Japanese taking pictures
1: and getting in your way.
0: <laughs> I mean, I remember that they made a, not even an oblique reference, like a completely in your face reference in crocodile Dundee. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, uh, you know, and like, I, I don't like, you know, I'm not trying to sound me, but it just so happens that those were the three people uh, that were in front of me. And it's not like they were blocking my view. I mean, come on, they're short er a little shorter but the the guy the family the three of them husband wife uncle i think and the daughter all had their phones out and they all had to capture a particular part of the show the girl was taking selfies and doing snapchat of herself And doing these weird, like, posing selfies with the audience, which was me behind her. Which, by the way, if you see any Snapchats or videos from the ELO concert where a girl is taking kissy photos of herself and you see a middle finger behind her, that's my middle finger. But then you have the dad, who is, like, arm straight up, the phone is in my face, and he is video, he is recording on his phone, on his note, his Galaxy Note, every single aspect of the show... When next to him, his wife is, like, grooving and doing, like, the, you know, the the disco dance, you know, jiving and whatnot. So you have this woman that's, like, grinding the seat in front of her, and her husband is just wanting to sit there and make sure he captures everything to put on YouTube. And that was another thing. He would capture a video, and then he would automatically sit there with a bright white screen and load it to YouTube. And then on top of that, the, uh, the brother, the uncle dude, left. He got lost. And I think this guy, like, they were, like, the other three, they were American, but the brother-uncle guy was, like, straight off the Chinese boat. Like, just right off the boat. And he got lost. He, like, got, he just got up, was tired of what he was watching, and he just left. And so for about 30 minutes, the family was trying to figure out where Uncle Wu was, and they just kept, like, looking around, and, like, a buoy that was lost out to sea, I'm sure he's a very lovely man, but phone man in front of me just kept slowly bobbing up and down, and his little tiny bald head just kept, like, getting in my line of sight every time, for the entire 30 minutes that he was looking for the brother-uncle dude that left, just bobbing up and down like a buoy out to sea, chrome dome in my face, and the lights are just, like, glistening off his bald head and blinding me. And even though... It was probably one of the best concerts I've ever seen. I just find it hilarious that, of course, this type of thing had to happen. I mean, it obviously, it doesn't happen to everybody, you know? It's not like a regular thing at a concert. So, I was talking about that much longer than I probably needed to, but, uh... <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know what though you it, it proved positive that you lead such a more interesting life than me uh, at least now at least right now maybe after i get out of school and everything i'll be able to have some misadventures and run into weird people and <laughs> throw middle fingers you know behind people and stuff i mean i did that at my party some people tried to take uh one of, some of my friends were taking selfies in front of me while we were doing the karaoke so i was like oh you're trying to upstage me huh and i managed to perfectly get myself bending down and flipping them off behind, you know, so.
1: I currently lead a very interesting life until, of course, I get hit by a car and cannot move ever again.
0: (laughs) How about how not we check the old email bag check that old sack yeah hey look there's nothing in it but if you would like to send us an email you can by sending us an email to the show at slscast.com you can also follow us on twitter at the slscast so there was that and that was quick how about if we get to some real news yes please all right here we go folks it's the news hey. This time, first up for me, from Reuters.com, by way of, why, why does nobody, uh, oh here we go, uh, Jill Sargent and Jonathan Oates. Uh, Marshall, uh Let's see here, Jackie Chan to get Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Martial arts expert and actor Jackie Chan will receive a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences announced uh Chan 62, the Hong Kong-born star of Hollywood movies such as Kung Fu Panda, The Karate Kid, and the Rush Hour franchise, will join documentary filmmaker Frederick Wiseman, British film editor Anne V. Coates, and casting director Lynn Stallmaster as recipients of the 2016 Governor's Awards. Each will get an honorary Oscar statuette, recognizing their lifetime contribution to film at a gala in Los Angeles in november so um what do you think there tim uh do you think he is worthy of his lifetime achievement oscar
1: now okay well this this, it's not a good time to ask me that question because we just (laughs) watched skip trace and what um, the
0: fantastic 1.75 rated film
1: (laughs) or unless you're me and it's significantly less than that <laughs>
0: yeah i you know
1: I, I'll, I'll give it to him he hasn't made a good movie and uh, starred in a in a live action a, a good live action movie in quite some time but the good ones that he had made or has made there are quite a few of them and they are actually pretty damn good so i think because of that he deserves it i think he he's paid his dues in the good movie department
0: I think so uh, as well, I, and especially what he's done for martial arts action overall. I think he's also opened a lot of doors uh, in terms of helping the Chinese market become the market that it is today. And, um, you know, the only thing that is, you know, I, I, there are many reports that uh, his overtly nationalistic tendencies tend to make him. Not really appreciate American audiences as much as perhaps we would like, but um, uh, but I still think that overall he he deserves he deserves the Oscar for all of his work. So, do you have a yeah. favorite
1: Jackie Chan movie? Ooh, it has probably been significantly different for you than me due to when you like where, where Jackie Chan was in his career. You know, at the time when. I was ten, eleven years old, opposed to when you were ten or eleven.
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm trying to think here. It would definitely be some of his stuff, probably more from the uh, late '80s, early '90s, and yeah, probably uh, Police Story would probably be. Where my favorite, because I think that is a real encapsulation of everything that made Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan. Even though it's, I mean, it's a Chinese film, just you really and truly got to see what made him just ridiculously amazing. Um, Although I was first alerted to him by 1984's Cannonball Run 2. So... <laughs> um, yeah, where he not, played, not he starred as, as
1: Burt Reynolds. Jackie Chan as Burt Reynolds. He <laughs> was Burt in... <laughs> Reynolds stunt
0: double. No, I'm just kidding. But it was. I mean, it was just a way to get you know, a, a bigger cast and everything like that to to do the fun stuff. But yeah, I would definitely say Police Story would probably be my all time favorite. And and of course, you can also look to Rumble in the Bronx, which was his first American crossover, like his true first American crossover. So. That's another really good one, too, I think. But, yeah. yeah, I think mine as a
1: kid, when Rush Hour came out, that was a huge movie. And I, I mean, to this day, I love Rush Hour, the first Rush Hour. So that was 97. Before Rush Hour, Super Cop was the big Jackie Chan movie for me and my buddies. So, yeah, there, there's just so many of them. I mean, we could probably spend an entire month reviewing all the good Jackie Chan movies. So I think because of that, yeah, he definitely deserves an honorary Oscar. <laughs>
0: Right on, right on. All right, what do you got for us, sir? Okay,
1: so I'm going to do a couple pieces of news here. First up, via Collider.com, Paul Verhoeven was taking part in an interview with Collider. Promoting a movie called *L*, uh, in Collider here they call it his latest feature, it's a twisted dark comedy, *L* is, about rape and sexual politics that practically dares viewers to scream in outrage, yet thanks to the perfect casting of the stunningly talented Isabelle Huppert, in the complicated lead role in Verhoeven's patented mix of wit and style, the film works. Constantly teetering on the edge of utter offensiveness, yet always intelligently controlled and executed. Yeah, so he was doing an interview for his latest movie, L. Phil Brown conducted this interview. But within this interview here, something very interesting. Phil Brown asked him and made this comment of, At this point, aside from Showgirls, all of your Hollywood movies have sequels, or remakes, or both. I always wondered if you... Watch them and what you think about them, and this was Verhoeven's response. Oh sure, I watch them. Somehow they seem like that the lightness of, say, Total Recall and RoboCop is a hindrance. So they take these somewhat absurd stories and make them much too serious. I think that is a mistake especially robocop when he awakens they gave him the same brain he's a horribly injured and amputated victim which is horrifying and tragic from the very beginning so we didn't do that in robocop his brain is gone and he only has flashbacks of memory and needs to go to a computer to find out who he even is i think by not having a robot brain you make the movie much heavier, and I don't think that helps the movie in any way. It becomes more silly or absurd, but in the wrong way. Both those movies, Total Recall and Robocop, needed the distance of satire or comedy to situate it for audiences. Playing it straight without any humor is a problem and not an improvement. And all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about that? I personally uh, totally agree with them. When the Robocop reboot came out, I enjoyed it. I thought it was definitely too serious. It definitely wasn't a fun, action-packed type of movie. But there's a segment where uh, RoboCop, I guess, is trying to figure out what the hell is going on and pretty much flipping out in the Doctor, Gary Oldman's character, just in order to to make it hit home, you know, to really drive it into his brain, Joel Kinnaman's brain, that you're a robot. You're nothing without the suit. There's a great segment where he starts taking away pieces of the armor pieces of the body and pretty much all that is left is the robocop you know his head his face uh his parts of his brain uh his what like a esophagus or spine something like that his lungs even and that's pretty much it so without that suit without the science this guy is nothing and that really kind of hits home what do you think about what uh verhoeven had to say about both robocop and total recall
0: well, I think he's definitely making the case for the fact that people are clamoring for a, if you're going to do a, a reboot slash remake, um, to make it original. And yet, when you're presented with things that are original, they get shot down for not being enough like the original movie. And, which is a shame because I thought Robocop had its problems and stuff, but, um, Robocop's problems were not in its remake status. Quite frankly, Ro- Robocop's biggest problem was that it was PG-13. Um, and, and in terms of, uh, Total Recall, that I thought was truly the consummate remake because it completely updated everything that you loved about the original film, all the way down to the three boobies. Come on, guys, that's what you're looking for. And the only thing they changed was the conspiracy. So I think he's got some excellent points, because um, because as a filmmaker, you are trying to make these things fresh and exciting, but still um, pay homage to its roots and why it's being made in the first place. So, so That's what I think. And
1: the next piece of news here via the com, something very interesting, and I know it titillated Matt a little bit after I, I brought this up during the pre-show. Toronto, multiple moviegoers pass out during screening of Cannibal Movie Raw. This is written by Tatiana Siegel, and it says this. The film became too much for a couple patrons, said Ryan Werner, who's handling the film's marketing on the ground at TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival, that is. A Midnight Madness screening of the cannibal film Raw turned into a medical scene earlier Tuesday morning as paramedics were called to treat multiple audience members who had passed out. Quote, an ambulance had to be called to the scene as the film became too much for a couple patrons, in quote, said Ryan Werner, who was handling the film's marketing on the ground at the Toronto Film Festival and was at the screening. The graphic film has become a must-see for horror fans after taking the Fipresci, F-I-P-R-E-S-C-I, Critics' Prize in May at the Cannes Film Festival, where it made its world premiere without incident. The mobbed screening also had top agents and managers on hand jockeying for the attention of director Julia Ducournau, who is currently unsigned. The French-language film about a vegetarian college student who slowly becomes a cannibal became one of the most buzzed about European films out of cans for its potential to cross over with U.S. audiences. So, Matt, did that titillate you? The idea that people... Are getting sick because of the cannibalistic gore that they are witnessing on the screen? Does that make you want to go and watch this movie? Spend your seven bucks for the possibility of upchucking in public?
0: Honestly, I I am I am truly intrigued. Uh, it's now it, it's a um, human centipede kind of intrigued. Where I'm not going to go and expect a good movie, but. If it's making people throw up and stuff, yeah, I'll take the raw challenge. I'm,
1: I'm down. the raw challenge.
0: Hashtag raw challenge. <laughs> All right, let's see here. I am going to go with uh, DSLReports.com, and this comes to us by way of. Carl Bode. Netflix pushes FCC to crack down on usage gaps. Netflix is urging the FCC to crack down on broadband usage gaps, stating that they unfairly limit consumers' ability to consume streaming video services. Netflix has long had an adversarial relationship with ISPs, and often for good reason. Usage caps on fixed-line networks are specifically designed to protect ISP TV revenues from Netflix competition, allowing an ISP to both complicate and generate additional product- Profit off of the shift away from legacy TV. Quote, data caps, especially low data caps and usage based pricing, UBP discourage consumers consumption of broadband and may impede the ability of some households to watch internet television in a manner and amount that they would like for this reason, the commission should hold that data caps on fixed line networks and low data caps on mobile networks may unreasonably limit internet television viewing and are inconsistent with section 706 End quotes there. And this is what and, uh, Netflix had to say in a new filing with the FCC. Um It says, though, that Netflix filing comes as ISPs increasingly turn to broadband usage caps to take advantage of the lack of broadband competition in many markets. Fearing FCC crackdown, both Comcast and AT&T raised their caps to one terabyte, though many ISPs still cap usage at much lower allotments. High, low, or somewhere in between, Netflix highlights that there is no good reason to implement caps on well-managed fixed-line networks despite a decade of ISPs trying to justify the price gouging. And the article does close this. Um, the FCC has historically shown very little interest in cracking down on usage caps or potential anti-competitive abuse of them. In fact, the agency has shown little interest in cracking down or even highlighting price gouging of any kind. As such, if you're waiting on the FCC to seriously police usage caps or in- even ensure ISP meter accuracy you may not want to hold your breath. Um, and that's the end of that article. However, I did skip about a third of the article, so please feel free to jump back in there. Especially, And Netflix's big point is that 4K streaming is going to become the norm, and there's no way uh, 300 gig or even a terabyte is going to work. So what do you think, Tim? I, I think that this is basically Netflix's... Yet another attempt by Netflix to kind of, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And not because they're trying to fear monger, but because they just want to keep continuously ringing the bell um, for consumers to be aware of what ISPs are doing to them. And I mean, and it does, it's going to affect all areas of technology and internet consumption, especially as we move away further and further away from legacy tv um and so it's going to affect the way we watch movies uh, it's going to the way we affect watch television the way we listen to music the way we do those the way that you and i even produce the show um so what do you think about that do you think netflix should continue to do this do you think it's kind of a waste of time um other thoughts no thoughts
1: it just kind of seems
0: like netflix is just
1: I, I I don't know I th- I think they're freaking out I mean do you do you do you stream a lot of 4K content or ultra high def content?
0: Um, I do stream pure high def content, um, so 1080p. But I I don't have anything that that currently that's 4K capable, so I wouldn't I wouldn't want to do that. But How about 4K but K, I, K, K, capable. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice try, Cartman. No, I, I, I like that personally. I like that they do this because ISPs know, especially when they're attached to like AT and T, when they're attached to Comcast, mm-hmm. they know just exactly how much money they're losing from cable. They know, as we talked about before, where Netflix is now struggling because of market saturation. Um, Netflix's new revenue, new new revenue streams would be increased viewing. So that they're making more money off of every hit um, that stays that stays on longer for the for all the people that have it. But the thing is, is that while Netflix is doing this, certainly to promote better traffic and better transparency for ISPs, they'll make money. I mean, let's let's not let's not uh, you know hide anything here. And it's good advertising Netflix for them too. Do that absolutely yeah. you know the consumer watchdog netflix but at the same time they are legitimately being kicked around and when you uh, cuz i think you know i think
1: that'd be good for them to know because then they would have to make it public how many people are watching what adam sandler movie on netflix and how long they're actually <laughs> watching it for and exactly i really want to know that
0: all right and and again i'm i'm not trying to say that the netflix should should be this highly held knight in shining armor or anything i do think that they are forcing consumers to keep an eye on that though and i think it all it does is just as new avenues get pushed you're going to see these companies like comcast and stuff just completely lose everything you know like like princess leia tells darth vader you know the tighter you hold on the more star systems slip through your fingers same thing you know the tighter you keep trying to clamp down on the way people watch stuff the faster they're going to leave you and, um, anyway, so yeah, there's, there's that.
1: Which is why I kind of wonder, like, so with, with various plant or the couple plans for Netflix, like you could have two people simultaneous, ti- simultaneous, simultaneously watching Netflix at once, uh, you know, like on two or three different devices. And then when you get a, you know, the, the more expensive plan, I think it's like four or five devices can be simultaneously watching netflix Mm -hmm. at once sure and recently or at least i think as recent as a year ago or maybe six months ago or so somebody asked the president of netflix whatever his name is probably should know that by now like what would you do (laughs) like what do you think about friends coming over or people coming over and oh yeah we've talked about this on the show friends coming over and you all watching a tv show together or a movie together does that bother you? Is Netflix going to want to kind of ring that back a little bit? And the president said, no, not at all. We count on that. I mean, that's how people get introduced to new content on Netflix. And I think once they start limiting that is when people are going to stop giving Netflix the chance. And will probably start not caring too much about Netflix and not relying on Netflix especially. So... I you know I, I think with the IP stuff uh, it's I think that's a it's a worthy cause right on man. So my last two pieces of news for this week I think are pretty interesting here. First up, from io9.com: Divergent star Shailene Woolly not interested in continuing the franchise on TV. Uh, and this is written by Germaine Lucien, and it says this. This was actually posted uh, last Thursday. So uh, this is slightly outdated, and I will actually reference another article from CinemaBlend that came out uh, earlier today, September 13th. But the IO9 article says this when the most recent film in the Divergent series, Allegiant, didn't perform up to expectations, Lionsgate had a surprising reaction. The company said it would like to finish out the series on television. If it does that, it may have to do without the franchise's star. Shailene Woolley, who plays the main character in the series, Tris, was recently asked by ScreenRant. What she thought of the situation, and it wasn't very positive. She said, quote, Last I heard, they were trying to make it into a television show. I didn't sign up to be on a television show. Out of respect to the studio and everyone involved, they may have changed their mind and may be doing something different. But I'm not necessarily interested in doing a television show, end quote. That's not her saying that she won't do it. Just that she's not, quote, not Necessarily interested. End quote. The timing of this quote is actually pretty funny because it came on the same day legendary actress Meryl Streep agreed to be on a television show herself. TV or film actress isn't really a distinction anymore, so I'm curious why Wooly, who herself became a star on the TV show The Secret Life of the American Teenager, feels this way. End all quotes there. Now I'm jumping over to the Cinnamon Blend article. Shailene Woolley still has no clue what's happening with the last Divergent movie. Uh, This came out again today, September 13th, and it says this. The Divergent film series started out strong, but it has slowly been running out of gas. Apparently, they're so up in the air that Shailene Woolley doesn't really know what's going on. During a recent interview for her new movie Snowden, Woolley was asked what her plans were for the final part of the Divergent series, and she says this, quote, They haven't finalized any decisions, so it's actually a moot point to talk about it now. Out of respect to Lionsgate and everyone involved, I'm not ex- exactly sure where they stand, so we are kind of in all a limbo. Right now, I signed up to tell the whole story of Triss, and I would love to be able to do that. Nothing would make me happier. End all quotes there. (sighs) Matt, do you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding Shailene Wooley and her involvement with the classic, on par with Lord of the Rings series, Divergent series?
0: Okay, so... Just to be clear, she would do the TV, or she would not do the TV. I'm I, when I, I'm gathering that she would not do the TV. Okay, I was just kind of confused by the way she was phrasing the last lines of the quote. But
1: there. she might do the TV. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: no, all right. Um, I, I, I've said it. If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times. So I'll just briefly reiterate. I think the whole thing sucks. I think the books suck. I think the movies suck. And it's pretty evident the movies have sucked. So, you know what? If, if, if homegirl wants to get out while, get, get out while she can, let her get out while she can. (laughs) That's, and that's all I have to say about that. Um, all right. This is going to be my last piece of news real quick. Deadline.com by way of Nancy Tartaglioni. Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge rivets with a 10-minute ovation at world premiere in Venice. Uh, Yes, now this is from last week. It is actually from last Monday. Uh, after wowing critics at an early morning at early morning press screenings on sunday mel gibson's pacifist world war ii action drama hacksaw ridge had its red carpet world premiere out of competition at the venice film festival last night the film played to a roughly 10 minute standing ovation long-standing o's are not as common a happenstance on the lido as they are at some other festivals at about six minutes into the ovation gibson and uh, and the actors were asked to go down into the audience <clears throat> so basically everybody's standing up there so you applaud you do a, and then of course they really liked it so they stand up but then they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and they're like okay guys you got to step down because they're never going to stop so then they stop and then they still go for like four more minutes after i mean i after after what we talked about with Bloodfather last week and now with, i'm mel gibson's back baby <laughs> i'm just so excited you have no idea uh he is only directing hacksaw rich he he is not in the movie and this movie uh follows along a seventh day adventist i believe um who saves 64 guys single-handedly without firing a shot in world war ii um so and yeah he got the medal of honor for it and this is what mel gibson directed so I, I mean this is if this is telling I can't wait. The movie I believe is scheduled to release in November. Uh dem, uh yes, Lionsgate releases Hacksaw domestically in the heart of ward season on November 4th. Overseas release dates are not yet widely confirmed. What do you think, Tim? Are you um are are you as enraptured with this news as I am or um shall, Will you wait until you can see the movie for yourself? To I mean, I'm
1: looking forward to the movie. I think the trailer is decent. I'm not a big Andrew Garfield fan, but I, I mean, I will give anything that Mel Gibson makes a fair shot uh, because I love the man. I love his movies for the most part. I love his directing movies, even though I am definitely not a fan of Passionate of the Christ. There's still some good filmmaking there for sure. Now, as for the standing ovation, um, it... The article said that it's not common, but it it can depending on who is in the audience, it can be common, because you have people that are directly involved with the movie, people who funded the movie and all that stuff. Based on reviews that I early reviews that I've read and early comments that have kind of come about, the movie's supposed to be phenomenal. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a nice depressing little Thanksgiving treat for us to
0: enjoy. It's not depressing. How the hell is a guy who stands who stands up for his religious beliefs and in the face of that kind of adversity saves sixty five? How is that? A, how is that depressing? Because there's no I'm, way this movie can be depressing. Because did
1: he save everybody?
0: Oh, okay. Uh, in in the world, no. But <laughs> I don't know. I think it'll be interesting <laughs> to see the struggle that he goes through for this. Uh, so I know, it's kind of
1: like a Forrest Gump vibe to it. It seemed like. <laughs>
0: i may not be a violent man but i know what saving a life is have you seen the trailer for it absolutely not okay no, I refuse well
1: well remember remember what you just said and wait till you listen to andrew garfield's very southern forrest <laughs> gump accent
0: did i just nail garfield's accent in this <laughs>
1: yes it just needs to be a little good. more youthful and he, he sounds like a young forrest gump
0: Oh, that's awesome. And that was the only
1: thing about the trailer that got me.
0: Coincidentally, it, the kid, it was the child actor who plays young Forrest Gump in the movie that came up with the articulation for the voice. Did he really? It really did. Really? So Tom Hanks was like, "Wow, that's really cool." And and so he used that as the grown-up vocal inflection, so. Anyway, maybe the little right. kid well, got it
1: from Andrew Garfield.
0: It's entirely possible. I don't think Andrew Garfield was alive yet. but Really? You know. Is he younger than me? I thought.
1: Uh, oh, well. I don't care.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, then I believe that is ending the news and will bring us to I'm the Only One Who Hated It. Do, 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 do.
1: I'm the only one who hated it because we don't have a theme song. For it.
0: Oh, good. Well, I, you know, I just wait and see. I, I, I never know what to expect on these particular ones that we do on a more obscure basis because your creativity oftentimes. It's grows. just going to be a long no fart. Matters. I really don't know how creative. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, clearly you guys know the score by now. This is a movie that has received, uh, either, uh, critical and or audience acclaim big box office hits uh, or any combination thereof and uh generally regarded as a really good movie but you don't like it or in this case we don't like it and so my pick this time is the 2000 american uh american drama traffic um, now i watched this movie uh, I, I will legitimately say it's not like the most terrible movie ever made um, because that's not fair i will however say that this movie is nowhere near as good as everybody made it out to be and it is basically a crime drama film and it explores the illegal drug trade from a number of perspectives from users enforcers, politicians and traffickers and instead of kind of doing it Quentin Tarantino style where you have a story being told, maybe not necessarily in order, but you're following along a narrative. No, no, no. They kind of do this like weird intersecting bullshit where all the people kind of pick up and leave off with each other. And then so they can kind of tell these four different narratives, uh, without, (coughs) pardon me, without having to stop. (coughs) Goodness gracious. Pardon me. Without having to stop, And switch gears. Um, Here's why I hate this movie. Because it pretends to know more about the real struggles that people endure in the world of drugs. And I mean from the different perspectives. Than it actually does. And so let's take, for example, Michael Douglas. Now Michael Douglas uh, is in this movie. And he plays um a politician i believe yeah he plays he plays a judge actually whose daughter <coughs> goodness gracious excuse me whose daughter uh is a drug addict right and yet we're supposed to believe that he goes on this crusade to save his daughter um and like and he finds her like literally getting fucked for drugs um it's kind of you know uh and and so and this is somehow supposed to be you know like she almost it's almost like she turned to drugs because of his um because of of his career choices and how he ignored her and all this kind of stuff but you watch this dramatic thing fall out or you know carry through and you're just like this would never happen it would never happen there is no way to suspend your disbelief and it's every single part of the time of the timeline that happens throughout this movie with the exception of benicio del toro's character um i would i could definitely see how an agent in his in his his shoes might utilize some of the uh shall we say more interesting uh, investigative methods that he uses but Overall, every single step of the way, this movie is preaching at you. And yet it was so widely hailed as, oh, it's so gritty, it's so real. It's not. It's a fucking fantasy film about the way they just want to portray how drugs work. It's not, it's it just not worthy of all the shit that, it, that they did and everything. And if this fucking movie got, I'm not joking, it was um, it got best director, best supporting actor, best adapted screenplay. And best film editing. You'll notice that it's all in it's almost all in technical aspects of the film. And I don't even like the goddamn editing of the film because I didn't like the way they wove the plot together. So fuck this movie. It's got good acting, don't get me wrong, and like good cinematography and aspects of trying to set up a story, but the way they tell the story and the way they act out the story are retarded. I hate this movie. It's legitimately not the worst movie in the world, but I personally hate this movie. And I clearly, clearly, fucking $207.5 million later on a $48 million budget. Fucking two hours, 27 minutes of fucking idiocy. I hate this movie. Traffic from 2000. What do you got, Tim? Well, the movie I picked was by default. And I have
1: a great summary as to why I don't like this movie At work, out of all places. You would think I would have it at home, but I don't. It's at work, so I'm going off of memory, because it's been a little while since I have seen this film, Wet Hot American Summer. Yes, I chose this one in part. I was not prepared. For this uh for the for this segment, and in part because it's the end of summer, and why don't we celebrate a beginning of the summer movie with an end of the summer discussion on how bad that beginning of the summer movie is oh wait or no is the movie the end of summer no oh, no I see I failed at giving you a really at uh, uh, giving you a dismal overview of the film itself. It actually takes place the last day before everyone goes back to their real lives uh, on a summer camp, and it's an all-star cast of a movie. Came out in two thousand and one, so a number of these folk. This was their f- the first movie that they were ever in before they became, uh you know, big stars. You have Paul Rudd, Elizabeth Banks, Judah Friedlander, Amy Poehler is in this movie. SNL vets like molly shannon is in this film uh you even have janine garofalo is in this one Uh, david hyde pierce is in it and in probably the best role of the movie christopher maloney the great character actor you've seen him in what was he in like law and order svu but he played a lot of bit roles and he is actually the best part of this movie he plays a war veteran cook Who just like trips out and just doesn't put up with anybody's shit, and he knows Kung Fu and Karate, which is which is actually pretty funny. But that that's really kind of where the comedy begins and ends with this film. He play his character is the only like somewhat interesting character because he's playing it in a very slapsticky way. And this movie kind of follows the trials and tribulations of all of these characters, and not necessarily just one storyline so there's a lot of storylines to it and really this movie fails the most actually it fails on every comedic level and every comedic aspect because it's it's not funny for one thing and it also cannot pull off its parody and satirization without completely falling flat of course the movies kind of take is is, satir- is satirizing, parodying various different things. You know, you got your teen movies and you're going to summer camp type of movie. It just doesn't do it any justice on top of it. I mean what what makes for good satirization is that it becomes a another good version of what it's trying to satirize, for example. It's like say scary movie, or or better yet, airplane. Airplane worked because it was a parody of disaster movies from like the 60s and the 70s but in of itself is a disaster movie even though it doesn't take itself seriously it's still a disaster movie this movie isn't a really a teen movie it's not a summer camp movie at all it's just trying too hard to reach for the comedic apples but just falls off the ladder and lands on its face instead. And on top of all of that, what really bugs me about this movie, I should say, is that it's just boring. It's not entertaining. It's edited sloppily. All the stories, actually none of the stories, really fit together. And it just doesn't work. I mean, that's what's so good about whenever you watch like a Richard Linklater movie, like Days of Confused, or even Everybody Wants Some, which came out earlier this year. It's all about how it's pieced together. It's following these different characters. Well, I guess more so with Daisy Confused. I guess Daisy Confused and American Graffiti would be, uh, would be a better one to compare to. Those movies broken up into segments, and each segment follows a different character. But by the end of the movie, it all just kind of comes together in its own cool way. Wet Hot American Summer doesn't even do that. It's so ridiculous, it's trying to be so obscure that it's not even funny. Just think like Mad TV Comedy Hell with Mad TV. A lot of people love Mad TV, yet I'm sitting in the back wondering, why the fuck are you people laughing at this shit? It's not funny whatsoever. And believe it or not, even though on Rotten Tomatoes, Wet Hot American Summer does have a 32% Uh, Its critics' consensus was that, uh, as a comedy, Wet Hot American Summer is a slapdash fragmented affair that misses more often than it hits. As parody, it fails because it attempts to satirize something ridiculous and self-parodying in itself. But though the critics didn't like it, a shit ton of young people love the movie. A lot of high schoolers, a lot of college students, uh, I mean, people my age. Even now, there's a big cult following for the movie. A uh, community stage production of it was even made. So there it has its cult following. And again, I'm still left in the back wondering why. If you ever want to watch Wet Hot American Summer, do yourself a favor and skip the movie and watch the Netflix series Wet Hot American Summer, The First Day of Camp, or something like that, where actually that one is about the first day of camp, as opposed to this one, words, The Last Day of Camp. The show is significantly better. It's funny. It takes what they were trying to do, what they were trying to attempt with this movie, and does it right. So don't go back and watch the movie of Wet Hot American Summer. Do yourself a favor and watch the TV show, because the movie, guys, it's boring and it fails completely, and that is why I'm the only one who hated wet, hot American summer from
0: 2001. Fair enough. All right. Well, you know we were supposed to talk about a third segment for next week, and I don't think we did. So, are we gonna have a third segment next week, or are we just gonna skip it? We can. Well, since we're
1: doing uh, we're doing Blair Witch, we could do a. Did it age well of the Blair Witch Project, even though the Blair Witch Project only came out 15 years ago, or 16 years ago?
0: I guess we can we can make an exception, sure. Okay, easy enough. So, I guess that takes care of segment three for next week. Did it age well <laughs> for the Blair Witch Project. Uh, all right, well then I guess that leaves us with the movies, does it not, sir? Sounds good. All right, folks, here we go. It's... The movies. And this week's films are Hell or High Water and Skip Trays. So, do we start high and end low, or start low and end high?
1: <laughs> I would like to end this episode happy. So let's okay. let's start with uh with the worst one. And I got right. I hope we both agree that this is the worst one. Yes,
0: the worst movie, Hell or High I'm just kidding. No, totally <laughs> just, totally kidding. Totally kidding. All right. Skip trace. 2016 Hong Kong Chinese Action American uh I'm sorry, Hong Kong Chinese American action comedy film. Uh directed by Renny Harlan. And it is uh based on a story by Jackie Chan. And it stars uh, Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville as two people who are interconnected through a Chinese mafia setup. And end up having to go on a cross-country chase um, to both take out the mob, but also survive both the Chinese and Russian mobs. And this wacky uh, buddy comedy is exactly what i was talking about tim last week when i said i don't want to see another shanghai movie with him it's just he's 62 years old it's pretty clear from this movie he's not doing any more of the crazy amazing stuff that he's uh known for and again i don't blame him for that aspect of it um this movie has some really pretty locales um it has Some minorly entertaining fight scenes and is marginally better than the last movie I had walked out on. And I can't think of any other movie that I have truly ever walked out on. Really, I, I may have, but I can't, which would be another Johnny Knoxville movie called The Ringer. And that is the only movie reason this movie gets 1.75 stars. It's for those three reasons. This movie fucking sucks. It fucking sucks. I don't understand how the hell anybody will get work after this. And you still gave it a 1.75? Because okay, look. Watching Jackie Chan at work, <laughs> even if it's just a fading um you know, even if it's just the fading remnants of a once amazing action star. Is still watching Jackie Chan at work. Okay, it's kind of like people who got to see Frank Sinatra in the last year or so of his life. He was off key a lot. He just kind of puddled around on the stage. Um, it was really just him standing up there singing whatever the fuck he kind of felt like at that time. And it wasn't a. It wasn't really all that great of a show. But it was still getting to see Frank Sinatra. And no one could ever take that away from you. It's kind of like that. You're still seeing Jackie Chan do some pretty cool stuff. You're still seeing that spark of what makes Jackie Chan, Jackie Chan. And again, legitimately, you know, the stuff from the Mongolian aspect. I mean, the cinematography wise, it has some merit. It's just not funny. It's a completely overplayed. Um trope of a movie, and yet I still remember the worst Johnny knoxville movie i've ever seen, which is the ringer and i can't because that's a zero fucking star movie- The ringer is truly a zero fucking star it's not just zero stars it's zero fucking stars and this movie is truly better than that i uh not uh, clearly not by a whole lot, but I can't say I fully fucking hate this movie, but this movie was a trial to watch. And it's worse than I didn't like it. It's definitely getting into hated it territory. Um, so I will give it 1.75 for the fact that you're still getting to watch Jackie Chan do some work. Um, and the locales and stuff are neat to look at. But not for the story. Not for the fucking writing. And not for the fucking jokes. Oh my god. 1.75.
1: Yeah, every review that you read of this movie, in every single one of them, good or bad, and there's a lot of bad reviews, it always begins or ends with, the locations are great. The loc- the scenery is beautiful. And that's pretty much it. Uh, some months ago, uh, after I saw, actually about a year ago, after I saw a screening of Cutthroat Island, the, the Rennie Harlan movie Cutthroat Island, I said that I wanted more Rennie Harlan. And unfortunately, Rennie Harlan directed Skip Trace. Which is kind of what drew me to wanting to see Skip Trace. Not uh, not just because of Jackie Chan. I thought pairing Jackie Chan and Johnny Knoxville would be a nice substitute for Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. Throw in Rennie Harlan, and hey, you got yourself an entertaining buddy comedy action adventure picture. But if this is the Rennie Harlan that I'm going to get, I, you know, I'm fine with no Rennie Harlan, and if that means that Jackie Chan will make more movies like this, exactly like this, then I really don't want any more Jackie Chan. Now, is it Jackie Chan's fault? Is it Johnny Knoxville's fault? I think it's definitely not Johnny Knoxville's fault because he was playing the, regardless of how the, how the movie was directed and how it was scripted, he would have played the character the same way. He was just saying the lines that he had to say and he said it and he performed it just fine. Jackie Chan did his lines and performed everything just fine. He's saying that fuck, that stupid Adele song. They're in a, a Mongolian village, and it just so happens all the Mongolians knows that Adele song in the deep or whatever it's called, and they can all sing along to it and it, and it creates this beautiful connecting bonding moment between all of them. N- uh, no, doesn't fit in this movie. But you have a movie with a shitty script. An idea that has been run to the ground. We've seen this movie before, like Midnight Run, for example. In the movie, the direction of it is so uninspired. You have shoddy overdubbing, where you have I, I think who plays Jackie Benny Chan. <laughs> yeah, his name is Benny Chan. Benny Chan's daughter. I think it's his daughter. She was speaking. It looked like her mouth was, spe- you know, like she was speaking English, but she had a or somebody had to go back and overdub with English. Everybody else is speaking English, but she's the only person with the dubbing. At least it was apparent that she was the only person with the dubbing. And then on top of it, the action scenes. Usually, with with action scenes, you have like great musical numbers, not musical numbers, but you know, like these very exciting music cues. And yet, with this movie, it was like the really goofy. Stereotypical, you know, like really kind of hammy uh Asian Japanese style of 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 music. Whenever they're trying to convey goofiness, you have that really you know, it, it's that type of corny music that you hear often in many goofy Japanese or Chinese uh films. Or I should say comedy films. And that is what litters this movie. All the comedic action scenes is just overpowered, overshadowed by not really good action set pieces. Yes, Jackie Chan is older. Why not just give him fight choreography or have him do fight choreography that he can still do and not have to resort to blue screen or green screen or obvious stunt doubles? So the action scenes are... Trumped by all of that and all of the corny music and corny dialogue and the story progression. I don't know. Like I I can go I can talk about this movie for a while, just how bad it is. Um, but really I just don't think it was Johnny Knoxville, even though he was the most annoying character in the movie. He was just playing himself. He was exactly who I thought he would be, or how exactly how I thought he would be in the movie. I just think it's it's Renny Harlan's fault, it's Jackie Chan's fault, since he has the story by and producing credit, and just the other writers, and everybody else on set who could have who could have put in their two cents and helped maybe steer this movie into a different direction. And I am giving Skip Trace, unfortunately, and again, I was really looking forward to seeing this movie, point 0.5. That is right, a half star. So this officially makes Skip Trace... My worst-reviewed movie of the year so far.
0: <laughs> this this is this is true. Oh, this is so very true. And even despite my one point seven five, that makes the average, <laughs> the aggregate a one. <laughs> there is nothing saving this movie. Do not see this movie. Uh, all right. Well, then moving from the crap to the amazingness we have hell or high water 2016 american heist crime films directed by david mckenzie uh and stars jeff bridges chris pine ben foster and gil birmingham uh this movie was actually a script winner from the 2012 blacklist which is pretty damn sweet Uh, and it basically follows uh two men as they rob some banks to um uh, as they rob some banks in order to save their family farm. Uh, two brothers, to be specific. And uh, I'm struggling with this one, Tim. I'm struggling because this movie is near flawless. Near flawless.
1: Yeah, I, I feel the same way.
0: Uh, it. And yet, I just I am I'm, I'm debating between 4.75 and five. So clearly, clearly, when you're having to debate the quarter star, that makes it amazing or not. You should probably just see this fucking movie. Um, <laughs> uh, I just here's the only problem here's here's the only problem that I have with with, with this movie. Okay, the the scenery is great. This movie actually kind of... It almost kind of comes across as a farm drama, really. Like like the old style farm films that you would talk... Like HUD from back in the day. Um, this... And yet it also definitely blends elements of heist. Clearly. And yet there's solid character work being done here. Holy crap, it's so nice to see that uh, Chris Pine really has acting chops and a future ahead of him (laughs) um and jeff bridges could very well come into his next oscar for this movie um but ben foster ben foster plays tanner howard he's toby's brother toby played by chris pine he the characterization itself was fine. I just have a problem with that character. And I also think that because of the way that the character is utilized, especially in the back, I don't know, 15 minutes of the film, it kind of leads to some inadvertent pacing issues. And I and I just don't know if it's enough to knock it down to 4.75 or if I can forgive it because holy fuck is this movie awesome. And especially the la- like the last six lines of the movie – it's not a twist it's not a twist so please i don't think it's just wow it's some of the most powerful dialogue ever that i've seen this year for sure um so i don't know tim do i give this one do i do i give it the pass or do i or, or should i be strict Okay, well,
1: there are three things that I want to bring up in a spoiler section of this movie, so we could go into more detail about it. But I personally am giving this movie a 4.75 out of 5, because I, I think this is a perfect modern Western. It has, I mean, everything that you love from a great Western it's in this movie for the most part and without it being like completely mirroring any particular great western. This film is super original. You have super original characters for the most part. I I, I think the filmmaking itself, the camera work especially was absolutely wonderful and and, and the camera work was utilized um, as a way to really engage the audience after the action happened like when the car is speeding away from a bank the camera would start out Um, kind of uh, further away and as the car comes by suddenly the camera zooms in a little bit but then the camera follows the car you know so it goes so the camera stopped and as the car doesn't stop and it moves by the camera the camera zooms into the to the driver's side and is riding along with the car and just like little tiny camera touches like that just really drives the movie into uh into into sheer entertainment Uh, i mean i i have to say And also with the film, uh, what I kind of notice and what I've kind of drawn from it that I've seen from uh, in other older classic Western movies, kind of like HUD, for example, like what you were saying, Matt, are the imperfections in the camera work as well as uh, as, as the shots in particular. I think that adds to the novelty of the film. Like, you don't have to have this crystal clear, you know, 4K, you know, beautiful eye-popping shot of this beautiful landscape or this, this like, super smooth uh, transition or camera pan. But when there's, like, a little bump or when something is a little bit out of frame, it just adds to the movie. It adds to, again, the, the novelty of the film. And one example are is the lens, uh, lens glares, you know. Like, most of this movie takes place, well, actually, in the... It, was all shot in New Mexico as it turns out but it all te- takes place in the you know in the midlands of Texas where you have a lot of weeds and a lot of dirt a lot of dust and a lot of sun for example and so depending on where the camera is shifting and moving you see that 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 glare from the sun but it's never anything too overpowering and it fits the movie completely due to the scenery and at the very end of the movie when the credits roll the camera does this really co- uh, cool shot where it kind of comes down into the weeds but it's not like a very smooth transition from a, a high up shot, up and you know, going down to the weeds. It kind of like hits some of the weeds, and the camera moves a little, br- a little bit. And as the credits roll, you see the camera kind of jiggling some. And I watched all the credits because of that shot. It's something that you never see before, and it again, it just adds to the scenery and it adds to the novelty of the film. But there are three things in particular that I took issue with the movie. Obviously, because I gave it a 4.75 out of five, it didn't bother me too much. But there are things that I would like to bring up to you, Matt, in a spoilers section. So I will end my review with 4.75 out of five. You, people, you've got to go see this movie at the movie theater. It is definitely worth it. I I, I think it's my favorite movie of the. It's definitely my favorite movie of the year so far. Um and it it's going to be fun seeing if anything can beat this one because it, not only is it great drama, but it's great entertainment as well without being super heavy-handed or anything like that. So please go and see this film.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and agree on 4.75 out of 5. And I would like to note that the last two movies I have seen with um, Jeff Bridges have been five stars and 4.75 stars, respectively. So, clearly, Jeff Bridges is the shit. (laughs) What was the last one? All right, so, uh, Little Prince. Oh, yes. That's right. Which I gave uh, five stars on. So, and that was, I want to say, the only other, uh, outside of back in January when I gave Revenant five stars, I think that's the only other five-star movie this year. So, you can see how hard it is to get a five-star movie out of me anymore. (laughs) I'm so jaded.
1: (laughs) You can get a lot of stuff out of Matt, but a five-star movie, you cannot.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, All right. Well, cool. So then let's go ahead and let's get right into it. So clearly, if you're not into the spoilers, you know that's what we're doing right now. Uh, We always try to get the ratings up now. And then... Go into spoiler territory. So if you don't want spoilers, thanks again for listening. Have a great week. We'll catch you next Monday or whatever next weekend, whatever it is. (laughs) I don't remember anymore. If you're hanging in, join us. All right. So your three spots that you wanted to tell me about because, um, okay, so for me, when, here's the thing with Tanner. And right now, um, we're going to
1: just assume that people who are listening now has actually seen the movie and know what we're talking about
0: yes okay. or or yeah or don't care about spoilers or you know whatever um all right so tanner tanner is supposed to be uh, you know like uh do you watch uh it's always sunny
1: oh yeah yeah he's the okay. yeah
0: so tanner's supposed to be the wild card right you know it's like hey you're not expecting me to do that cuz it's a wild card um and i again it's not the acting that bothers me or anything i just thought that the character itself was a little too overboard i think that and and it wasn't about balance because clearly toby is a lot more of is is a very cool customer but i don't think we needed tanner to end up going off on a shooting spree necessarily and i don't think we needed tanner to have this drawn out chase which again that's what i thought led to the pacing issues where ultimately i mean uh hamilton kills him but that whole section of the movie kind of felt like it was just really unnecessary. I think that there could have been a lot... Uh, th- there were better ways to make tension and to draw it out without having to necessarily start killing a whole bunch of people. And I don't, and yes, I say a whole bunch of people, you know, like a grand total of body counts, like four. But you, you I mean... It just, I think, especially in light in in light of the last scene where Toby and Hamilton kind of face off, and Toby's basically like, "Hey, well, you know, we need to meet some we need, we need to meet uh, pretty soon, so we can finish our conversation." Um, God, uh, you know, if you can have that kind of writing and you can elicit that kind of a response out of the closing scene of the movie. Why do you need someone like Tanner going off on a spree where he has to end up, you know, kind of holding people off in a standoff situation so that Toby can get away? I think there's a much better way. I think there could have been better ways to handle that. And you see Tanner kind of going more and more overboard as as it goes on, but not necessarily in a truly progressive way more as a plot device kind of a way and that is why i was saying that characterization which ultimately leads to some pacing issues for me was hurting it so bad so what were your specific three spots that you wanted to talk about well i think
1: regardless tanner had to kill jeff bridges's uh, his partner in some way because i think that really okay because in some way cuz that that that's what really triggers Jeffbridge his character to like
0: care. You know. Uh,
1: well well like to make it a point to maybe to to finish this. Cuz there's that great scene at the end at the end which is actually something that I really wanted uh, a, a a a glare that I wanted to linger more is when they both kind of hat well Toby has his gun uh just holding his gun and you can just tell that jeff bridges hamilton he was wanting to like re- like his hand was kind of resting where he had his gun hidden and they were both right. saying shoot why don't you shoot and you know if you shoot you know just see what i do you know maybe i'll get you maybe i won't and they just start they just glare at each other look at each other and what i really wanted to happen and it was all because partly it was because that uh that tanner shot hamilton's partner and right. I don't think we would have gotten to this point without that uh, w- without what happened beforehand now I definitely agree with you that I don't think it didn't have to be as extent tanner definitely didn't have to go onto a, into a killing spree because what I'll mention uh, of what I'll mention in a second but I really liked that moment when toby and hamilton were just staring at each other and I really wanted to linger more because I thought that Something's going to happen. One of them is going to grab their gun and shoot the other. But then it happened too soon when the the mother shows up, the ex-wife shows up in the car, and it just breaks the scene. But um, what really, okay, so really the main things that, that bugged me were all Tanner-related, I guess. One was when Tanner pulled out the AK-47 to shoot at the townspeople that were following them, And for some reason, that was the reason why the townspeople decided to turn away, even though they were all hot on the heels of these two guys. They didn't blow out their tires. They just shot up their cars a bit, and the townsfolk retreated, even after driving however many miles out of town, trying to chase these robbers down. So that was one thing that bugged me, and felt a little too much like a plot device. And the second thing... Was that I really didn't see Tanner as the crazy maniacal maniac that he kind of became at the end of the movie? You know, just the the outright murderer. I didn't I didn't believe that. I I knew he had problems and he had anger issues. I just didn't see him as maniacal, uh, and 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 that's what kind of bugged me. At you know like. What, what lured him away from having that great moment with his brother where, you know, I'm proud of you for doing this. You stuck with me, but oh shit, you got shot to all of a sudden, let me lure the cops away so that you can go off and maybe try to, you know, help yourself and the kids out and, and your kids out. And I could possibly die from doing this. Like, there, there was never like a moment. There was never, there was nothing telling that there was a not necessarily a change in his character, but there was a decision to where he did that. And the only thing I could think of, the only reasoning I could give to that motivation to where Tanner by this point is, I don't care, man, if I go down Blaze of Glory, that's exactly what I want to do. I didn't get that from him at any other point of, of the movie that like that's the type of character he was. I just thought he was a greedy bastard that would just do anything for money but not necessarily go out in a blaze of glory. I don't know. Am I making any sense whatsoever?
0: Well, kind of. I, no, I get it. I think that, um, that again, I, I I just think that it's it doesn't come down to the acting. I think it's just a poorly – I think it's a very poorly – not. I won't even say written. I think it's a poorly planned character is really what I think it boils down to. I just think that this particular character um, was used more as a plot device than a legitimate character development for everyone else. And I think that without it, you wouldn't have had... You're right. I think that regardless of how it played out, Tanner's got to kill Hamilton's partner. Um, But... I will disagree on the final scene in terms of the standoff because I think that if you if you let it go too long, you you would have definitely had the good, the bad, and the ugly. Remember how they have the final showdown scene uh, with their you know quote unquote Mexican standoff with the man with no name and the the bandit and the and and it, and so they just kind of go for like god two and a half minutes it seems like. Um, well not two and a
1: half I wasn't saying two and a half minutes no no I know but I
0: mean I I just feel like if they had to drug it out anymore you would have gone into that territory uh, where it was too long and I thought that it was a really interesting way to break that tension um, was to have them show up because Hamilton kind of realizes oh hang on you know I may not like this guy but this guy's you know clearly got some kind of scruples but at the same time we're still left with toby you know basically you know it's not over um so yeah i think i think we're basically in agreement that tanner was a bad character for this movie um but not enough to. But but not all that bad. The movie. Obviously. No no yeah but not yeah, yeah I think I, I think it's easy to say that he's the worst character in an otherwise flawless movie. Um, yeah. No exactly. If, if that's the best, if that's the worst, if that's the worst thing you can say about it, then <laughs> still go see this movie. So awesome. All right. Well, cool. Did, was there anything else that we were wanting to?
1: No, that's add. pretty much it. I mean, everything else was kind of. You know, the one or two other things were just kind of nitpicky, but not really anything worth mentioning. Like, did it bother you, uh, Toby, Chris Pine's character? Like, at the end of the movie, all of a sudden, he was kind of like clean-shaven, and he had that old man cowboy mustache, and he was dressed really nice, kind of super polished, and all of a sudden he turned into a badass?
0: Uh, No, because I think that is, I think, I think that's ultimately what he was always trying to become. I think it was the only way to fully make the break from what he was before. Uh, it also lends credence to why he's dismissed as a suspect. Uh, you know, That's in fair terms enough. of his presentation, yeah. so...
1: I love how with this new format we're doing, with the spoilers, we're actually able to talk about stuff like this because (laughs) it's fun. It's entertaining.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. It is. All right. Well, that concludes the movies for this week. Um, And please do not watch Skip Trace. (laughs) Please go see Hell or High Water. Uh, Twice. Next week we're looking yes, twice. And see if you agree with our mutual 4.75 rating on that. Uh, Next week, we've got Sully and Blair Witch. um, And that's going to take care of that. I think we're down to the spiel, are we not, sir?
1: Spiel on!
0: All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com both/slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at @nitwit12345. You can even climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always follow us on some, uh, on iTunes and favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Johnny Knoxville, I get to say this. I know this is going to end bad, but I'm going to pretend it's going to end good. My life's philosophy. And in light of skip trace, truer words, Johnny Knoxville, truer words. Take care,
1: cinephiles. We'll talk at you again next week.